Welcome to Life Quest Liberty, live in-depth conversations with today's top writers, editors, and spiritual leaders concerning religious freedom around the world. On today's broadcast, we'll examine local and international factors that may be impacting your right to worship and obey God as your conscience dictates. I'm your Life Quest Liberty host, Charles Mills. The government of this country isn't supposed to be selective when it comes to supporting the various faiths and belief systems within its borders. Like justice, it's supposed to be blind. But what about inside the church? What about when you walk through the front door of your church? Are you supposed to let your religious liberty stay out there with your coat and your umbrella? Are you supposed to sit in your pew and quietly take whatever the church has to say? Or do you have a right? Do you have the freedom? Do you have the responsibility to stand up and say something different? That's what we began to talk about on our last program. And I've asked Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, to return today to talk more about this. Lincoln, we established last time that the church has rules and principles that we are supposed to abide by. What are we supposed to do when we sit down in church and we realize that what we're hearing from the pulpit, what we're hearing in our Bible class, is not exactly what we believe in our heart? Do we have a directive from God himself to change not only ourselves, but the church where we're a member? What is our responsibility here? I do think we have a directive from God to follow our conscience, and and if someone feels that way... I don't think they have uh, any obligation to keep quiet, but what they seem to have forgotten lately is they may not have an innate right organizationally or even on a point of human interaction to force their view on this church that they are a member of that officially holds something different. But they have religious freedom. It's, it's our freedom. It's, it's well, they do it. And this is, as, as I said at the beginning of last program, the, the simple thing on religious freedom within a church is that it is a group of free association. Yes. yes. And you, you can't easily be compelled when you can leave any time you want. And, and if someone's view is incompatible, they may have to leave. Mm-hmm. And that sounds sort of rude because in reality, at least in my church, I've come to believe that what's holding most people together is not primarily doctrine. It's social mm-hmm. bonding. Mm-hmm. And there should be social bonding. But when that's all is going on, then... To have a conscience difference doesn't play very well. And a lot of those people that don't understand what the church stands for and and maybe have discovered something else, they feel betrayed on every level. And they're the first ones to say, my religious freedom is being restricted. Well, not really. But they don't have a right to force a view on a group that directly stands for something else. You know, it's worth saying or reminding people that part of the dynamic that went into the Reformation in Germany with Martin Luther you know, he was a priest within the Roman Catholic right, system. Right, right. He believed that he could reform it. It's historically not accurate to see Martin Luther as trying to uh, separate from the Roman Catholic Church or even to pull it down or anything. He just believed that he could uh, get it back on course, that there were some inconsistencies in the system, and that if he pointed it out, they would revert. Mm-hmm. Turned out not to be so, and uh, you know, it was very good for the Reformation and even for Martin Luther himself, that he ended up founding the Lutheran Church. But the key element in this that people need to get in mind was not that the church objected. They have every right to object Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because he was indeed, it turned out, threatening the very basis. What was wrong there was that the Pope swore out a papal bull against him, which, uh, if if things had run their course, would have meant his life. No church has the right to threaten someone's physical security. 
and certainly in the, in the Western world where we have uh, any number of laws that protect individuals as well as guard religious freedom, that's not at play. It's one thing if the church victimizes someone. And, you know, I must say I've lived long enough to see where, where a church, you know, this is not theoretical. I've lived long enough to see where some dissidents within a church were threatened by the administrators that if they persisted in their view, they would take away their retirement benefits. Well, Ooh. I think that's wrong. Oh, yes. Because yes. that's mixing in legal, uh, yes. trying to take yes. away a legal right yes. Yes. because of a doctrinal difference. So that's one of the few cases I've seen where, uh, you know, a modern church might be overstepping the bound. But generally on the debates that go on and then even maybe the exclusion from fellowship or membership that follows, there's not a threat to someone's liberty religious liberty, but there may be a great injustice to their sensibilities and to their spiritual uh, uh, integrity. Well, let's let's talk uh, some practicalities here. In our church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, as well as other churches, I must say, around the world, women's ordination is a very hot topic. You talked about this a little bit at the end of last program. If yeah. a person is sitting in the pew and says, you know, I think women should be ordained, and they stand up and they say, I think women should be ordained, and the church says, well, no, we don't do that right now. We want to discuss it. No, no, I think they need to be ordained. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make sure that they can be ordained next year. What should that person do? Instead of all this militancy we hear and all this shouting across the aisle, what should people do when they have a view different from what their church, that they are a member of, that they pay tithe to, that they were baptized into, what should that person do in that circumstance? Within general uh, norms, I think they have a right to speak about it. Yes. I don't think too many uh, Western-style churches have tried to invoke you know, the power to stop you talking, period. Yes, yes. <laughs> but people need to recognize that there is a process and you risk putting yourself in rebellion to the system if you persist. And the, the Seventh Adventist Church has processes. Mm -hmm. it's, it's roughly set up like the, the American government. It's not purely democratic. It's representational. And yet the, the voice of the individual has a chance to be heard during certain church convocations and so on. And that's where these policies are set. And so people shouldn't feel thwarted when, uh, you know, they have a view and it's not granted immediately, but they run the risk of pursuing it to the detriment of the congregation and ultimately running foul of church operation if they persist. And some of these rebellious attitudes ultimately undercut the very viability of the organization. And that's where I'm most troubled by, not on you know, the discussion of women's ordination, yeah. but to win a, a point within a church, you can run more than the risk. You can almost certainly destroy the very process of dialogue mm. and and of, of communication within the church that keeps it running, once that breaks down, nothing will work. You know, I, I look at the life of Christ, and you bring us back to that often on this program. How did Christ handle his religious freedom within his church. I mean, he called people vipers. He stood up and he said things. Yeah. But how far did he go on this thing? Well, of course, none of us are the son of God. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm not. What I mean is he had, he had a very clear uh, yes. charter from his father to set things straight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think we have an obligation to speak out. But, you know, I'm also t trying to talk on the structure of of dissidents within the church mm -hmm. as a matter of religious liberty model applied within the church, mm -hmm. not whether or not the issue is true. 
you know, that's a different debate, whether women's ordination has validity or not. We're not really talking about that here. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how that discussion should be carried on and at what point should someone feel victimized or at what point should they feel that they owe a loyalty to the the organization and work it through. And if they can't do it that way, recognize, well, I should opt out of this. I can't force it because ultimately force is the key to understanding religious liberty or the lack of. If there's force involved, it's wrong. Now, let's, let's fold this over then into the government's uh, fingers coming into our church. We are, as a religious organization, all of our churches in this country have certain benefits by being who we are. Is this a religious liberty issue that needs to continue, or should we look at this closely? It's becoming that. Yes. <laughs> Alonzo T. Jones, who was the uh, pioneer for religious liberty in the Adventist church, and a very aggressive figure, he, you know, he maintained... Well, I think to his dying day that the church shouldn't take tax exemptions from the state, that mm-hmm. it really uh, acknowledged state power. We've never taken that narrower position. I'd rather see it the other way, that it's not any new artifact of a democratic system or the United States. From the earliest, earliest times under every system, ancient Egypt you know, comes to mind and so on, the priests and the, and the religious system was set aside from government power. They wouldn't pay taxes. They wouldn't really be part of the government system. Some people now, even within the church, are inclined to see a tax exemption as a favor from the government. Mm. Mm. But to see it that way is to think like the Clinton administration, <laughs> in a loosey-goosey way, admitted during their tenure that they sort of saw the citizens as vassals of the state and that, the, <laughs> that we were there at their discretion to, yes. to, to do good things for them. Yeah. It's the other way around. Remember, the government derives its power from the people. It's nothing in itself. It's worth remembering that the state or the, the people in their civil dispensation, they really don't have any power over the church. The church is, is a spiritual entity. Mm-hmm. So all a, a tax exemption is, is recognizing that the state's power doesn't extend to the church. Mm-hmm. It's not a concession. It's a recognition. That said, I think we're on the cusp of a legal shift where some of the exemptions may be taken away and, and a judge at at a, not the Supreme Court level, but a state level, has decided that the ministerial exemption is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. I really don't know on what basis other than trying to apply the First Amendment, the separation of church and state to it. Mm -hmm. But as I've said, it's pretty easy. Anyone that knows history can show that it's a recognition, not a concession. Mm. (laughs) You know, there's no divine right of the state to tax everyone and anything and everything. (laughs) So it's just a hands-off. And, of course, it's not just money. The Hosanna Tabor case recently that went to the Supreme Court reaffirmed resoundingly in a unanimous decision that the state has no business regulating uh, church employment with its ministers and other workers in the institution, has no business on you know, how they're treated and so on. They may be mistreated, and I'm sure the state has a, an interest per se, but not a legal interest because the danger of the state intruding is far greater than the possibility to fix up a dispute between the minister, say, and, and the church employer. Mm, boy, that is a powerful statement right there. The danger is yeah. worse when there's intrusion going on. Well, Lincoln, as we come to the end of our program here, any final thoughts on this? This is a, an important discussion. Every member needs to be hearing this. 
Right. And th that's really my point. We, we can't settle it here, but I want to raise it. And as you and I have agreed, this is rarely, if ever, discussed. But it's a great point of contention. As I said, it gave rise to the great schism. Well, it isn't the great schism within Christianity. It was actually between the Eastern and the Western churches. But it's the great schism of the modern age, the Protestant Reformation. Yes, yes. And it worked out well there. <laughs> yes, it did. But way too many people are involved in churches in great disputations and uh, people are being harmed, uh, institutions are being threatened. The viability of, of, of a church can really be frittered away if people don't understand the, the true dynamic of religious liberty and at the same time misunderstand the, the spiritual calling for anybody who takes a faith profession to deal in a charitable, equitable way with their fellow believers. Mm, very good. Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine. Lincoln, thank you so much for these words of wisdom today. Always a pleasure. And listener, we invite you to libertymagazine.org for more on this and other topics. libertymagazine.org. Subscribe to the magazine. Read Lincoln's blogs. Articles are all there. Every one of them, they're all there. This program can be listened to again and shared from libertymagazine.org. Until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, inviting you to rest in the freedom of God's love. Goodbye, everyone. If you'd like more information about LifeQuest Liberty, call Three Angels Broadcasting Network at 618-627-4651 or email us through our website at 3abn.org. Join us again next week at this same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of liberty burning in your heart today.